Well, if you're joining us for the very first time today, we are in the book of the Judges. This is part 23. This is the 23rd sermon I have preached. Uh, We really love going verse by verse uh, through these Bible stories because that way you get like the whole unedited version. So huge fan of that. But if you're joining us for the very first time, let me just get you caught up to speed in like a 90-second kind of last time in the book of Judges type of feel. Uh, Israel... They are in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Moses leads them out. They wander in the wilderness for some 40 years. Then his uh, successor, Joshua, he takes over, leads them into the promised land, the land that God had promised for them. During the book of Joshua, this is the time of the conquest. They go in, they drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Well, most of them, at least. And then the book of the Judges begins the settlement period. And one of the reasons, according to Judges chapter 2, that Joshua didn't take out everybody in the land was so that the Lord could test the subsequent generations to see if they would be faithful like their parents were to the Lord. And of course, they're not. They're not at all. They don't drive out the remaining inhabitants who live in the land. Instead, they decide to become kind of complacent, apathetic, really, about their faith in general, like, I don't know, a lot of Christians today, and they settle literally and figuratively in the land. And as a result, the nations around them begin to introduce them to their way of life, to the cultural norms of their own day. And Israel begins, yes, still to worship Yahweh, but also to begin worshiping all these other pagan gods. And they begin to turn their back on God. And so as a result, throughout the book of the Judges, God raises up these foreign nations to come and oppress them. The people cry out to God for help because, well, they need God's help because they're being oppressed by foreign nations. And then God raises up these judges. Now, the word judges probably doesn't best describe them. They're really deliverers because that's what they do. They do a military deliverance type of thing. These nations come, they cry out to God, God raises up the deliverer, they drive away the foreign threat, and then they're good. They're good for a while. And then they fall back into the same cycle. Each time, it gets a little worse. And we're in the midst of one of those cycles right now. This is the fourth sermon that I've preached about the life of Samson, the fourth and last sermon And we'll begin today in chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Shh, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Samson has a real problem when it comes to girls, okay? Like, a lot of people do, like... They do so good in their, in their walk with the Lord, and then they get into these romantic relationships, and then it just, it just wrecks everything. Well, then you have a lot in common, not in a good way, but you have a lot in common with Samson. That's his story here. And he's gone to Gaza, 45 miles away from where he lives. It might not seem like a big deal, but you try going 45 miles and you don't have a car. Okay, So this is quite a journey. And the people of Gaza realize he's there, and so they have planned, surround the area, they're going to kill him. And then 
somehow he escapes. He doesn't just escape, but he decides to take the gates of the city with him and escapes. And these gatehouses in the ancient Near East, they'd often be two or three stories, uh, three or two or three stories tall, and they'd have guard rooms flanking a tunnel-like opening. So if my chest was, say, the, the city gates, and I stretch out my arms just like this in front of me, uh, this would be like the tunnel leading up to the gates. And this would be two to three stories tall, and there'd be guard shacks all along here. And even though they know he's there, even though they essentially have him or the house or the city surrounded, he manages to escape. How does, how does that happen? And you think, well, maybe did they, they snooze off? What, what happened here? And oh, by the way, it's not just an, the fact that he escaped, but you would think if you took the gates off the city, might make a little bit of noise, and yet he escapes. How does he escape? I don't think he does apart from God's divine intervention in the story. I think that's the, really the only plausible explanation. Whether God caused these individuals in Gaza, the guards, whoever, to just fall in a deep sleep or perhaps not to hear or not to see, it seems that there is no doubt divine aid that is being assisted, uh, assisting Samson in order to allow for his escape. That's it. And so then we maybe ask the question, well, then what's the whole purpose of this opening sequence, this opening story? Because the narrator doesn't exactly give us a, a comment like, okay, how should we think about this? He simply just, hey, here's what happened. I'm just going to present the news to you and, you know, we report, you decide type of thing. That's all that he does. And so when thinking about, okay, well, what's the point of these opening three verses? I think it fits well within the context, though not explicit from the narrator. Think about, especially if you've been here for the previous sermons with Samson. This guy is not exactly a model character for us. One of probably the worst deliverers, worst (laughs) judges in the whole book. And you think about the fact where he's at right now. He's 45 miles from where he should be. And I think the fact that we find him 45 miles away, hooking up with this girl, right? You can say at least back in chapter 14, all right, maybe he was involved in a romantic relationship. He shouldn't have been in, but at least he was trying to marry the girl if he wanted to somehow salvage it. Here it's like, uh, if I'm looking to salvage this, yeah, I got nothing, right? I mean, he's literally going there to meet this pagan prostitute woman just to hook up with her. That's it. And the fact that he's now 45 miles removed doesn't just reveal that he's gone about as far as he can geographically from his home, but more importantly, he's gone about, a far, he's gone about as far spiritually as he can from God. He's off the reservation right now. Like so many Christians today. It's like, some of you, it's like the last time you were even in like a church service was, I don't know, you'd have to like look that up. Last time you even opened your Bible was, you have to look that up too. Like, you just, you've gotten so far. Well, maybe it's the busyness, right, of life, which, oh, by the way, will always be there. Or whatever it is. Like, you've just gotten so far away to the point where now Samson's doing this, like, unthinkable thing. And that's the thing. I think oftentimes we say, oh, well, that'll never happen to me. Right? I'll, I'll never go that far away from the Lord. Maybe I'll compromise here or here, but I'll never go that far. Until you do. 
And he has. He has. The fact that he's in Gaza reveals not just as far as geographically as he has traveled, but the fact that he is spiritually really far from the Lord. Verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. This is Samson's problem from the very beginning. And you may remember Samson's riddle back in chapter 14. I'll read it to you. Chapter 14, 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And of course, what was the answer the Philistines gave him in 14, 18? What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And it is Samson's love of women that finds the supreme answer to this riddle. See, it is Samson's love of women that ultimately is sweeter than honey. It is his love of women that is stronger than a lion. This guy can defeat a lion, a lion, with his bare hands. But he is putty in the hands of this woman, as we will see. And his problem isn't that he, let me just be clear, okay? I don't want to come off too cynical, like, what's wrong with him loving this woman? He likes her, whatever. That's not the problem. It's not that he loves this woman. That's the problem. It's the type of woman and women that he loves. That's the problem. And unfortunately, that's the problem for a lot of us in 2019. There are so many Christians who get into these romantic relationships. And one of the first things I like to ask people is, does this person that you like, are they a Christian? Yeah, well, I think they are. Do they love Jesus? Are they walking with Jesus? Yes. How do you know they are? The answer should be, well, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty evident, right? I've given this illustration so many times, so I'll count on group participation to help me out. I'm a huge hockey fan. If you're new, you might not know that. That's okay. This will still work. I have a favorite hockey team. And my favorite hockey team is? The Rangers. The Rangers, okay? There were some people who wanted to be a smart aleck and say the Flyers. Of course not. That's about, as, that's about going to like Gaza. That's pretty pagan. <laughs> but, but you say, okay, so new people. New people and old, old people, you know where I'm going. New people. You say, oh, they all know that your favorite hockey team is the Rangers. What's your point? How do they know? How do they know my, my favorite team is the Rangers? And you'd say, well... Everyone else in this room, if you knew that, you'd say, well, it's evidence, obvious. You wear a New York Rangers t-shirt like every other day. You do. You do. But like, it's, it's evidence, obvious. And that's my whole point. Like, when it comes to romantic relationships, I ask people, oh, do they love Jesus? I don't know. How would you know if it was evident? I'd like to think that your love for the Lord should be evident, if not equal to greater than your love for your favorite hobby or sports team. If you have to, that's why I tell people, I'm like, well, I think they might be a Christian. You think they might be a Christian? So you're telling me it's, it's more clear that they love the Rangers, their favorite sports team? That's 100% clear, no doubt about that. But whether they actually love Jesus, that's, uh, I don't know, maybe, I think, kind of. I don't want that guy marrying my little sister. I don't. And see, that's Samson's problem right here, right? It's not that he loves, it's not wrong to love, uh, uh, in his case, a woman. It's the problem is he's loving the wrong type of women. 
Women who don't love God. Women who aren't walking with God. Women who aren't serving God. And obviously I can flip this for application for a guy in that position, right? Or a girl, let me make a man in that position. That's, that's Samson's real problem. He loves this woman whose name is Delilah, which most likely in Arabic means to flirt. Which gives some foreshadowing here to really the, the whole episode that's about to happen. So, let's see what happens. Verse 5, And the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and said to her, seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That is a huge amount in that day. Okay? So Delilah, verse 6, said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. It's like... I mean, she might as well ask for his, like, his social security number, <laughs> major credit cards, home address, passwords to everything. But Samson kind of indulges her, first mistake. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dry, then I shall become weak like any other man. Now, I made the, the observation last week when he picks up the fresh jawbone of a donkey, kills a thousand men. The narrator's choice of words to say it was fresh is as significant here, the fact that Samson is not taking his Nazarite calling very seriously. This fresh bowstrings would have been considered an animal carcass. And, and Samson is a Nazarite, a Nazarite from birth. Now, most people, if they enter a Nazarite vow, like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you'd enter into a Nazarite vow for a specific period of time, and you do so to dedicate that part of your time to the Lord. And so as a Nazarite from birth, Samson can't cut his hair, check, can't drink any type of or consume any type of alcoholic beverage, and Three, he can't have any contact with a dead body. As an Israelite, he can have no contact with any type of animal carcass. And this would obviously violate that. The fact that this is a, a fresh bowstring from an animal. The point, this is all a big joke to Samson. He doesn't really take his calling seriously. A theme that will be repeated throughout the story Verse 8, Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
So while he slept, verse 14, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. She, uh, she adopts the tactic of the Timnite woman in chapter 14. The, his Timnite wife, Samson tells the riddle back in chapter 14, the Philistines can't figure it out, they threaten his wife, and she tries and tries and tries to get Samson to tell her, what Delilah does. Nothing works. And then she finally says, you don't love me. If you love me, if you really cared about me, if you were really committed to me, you tell me. I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you before, right? If you really loved me, if you really cared about me, like as much as I care about you, Right? You, you would do, I don't know, you do X, Y, and Z in the bedroom with me. I, I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but if they have, um, run. Run. Yeah, that seems like good advice to me. Seems like it would have been great advice for Samson if you'd taken it. But she wears him down. She just wears him down so much. And what's interesting is when he finally tells her, it's kind of remarkable. I want, I want us to look at this. Yeah, that's it. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. My head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become we can be like any other man. The reason this is really remarkable is because we've wondered throughout the story, this is like the fourth sermon I've preached on Samson, we've wondered at times, does Samson even get it? Like, is he even self-aware to what's going on? Is he self-aware to where his power comes from? Where, how does he think he tore that line apart with his bare hands? Does, does he get it? And clearly, he does. He has an awareness to where his strength comes from. He has an awareness to his calling. And he has a very high calling. But more than that, this is remarkable because you think, I wonder what is going on in Delilah's mind. She hears Samson say this and thinking like, how could Samson be so casual in his relations, not just with foreign women, but with women of ill repute, like the prostitute of Gaza. Like, how? He's supposed to be this Nazarite? 
this Israelite? He's supposed to be different? See, one commentator points it out like this. It's not so much that Samson willingly violates his calling, his Nazarite calling. It's just that he doesn't take it seriously. Like his strength and the people around him, it's just a toy to be played with, not a calling to be fulfilled. And I'm thinking every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, who are Christians, you have a calling. You have a calling. And it's not necessarily the fact that you're going to begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus, you have a calling. And your calling is not to get married, to not to have the 2.5 kids with the white picket fence, live in the suburbs, retire early, right? Your calling is not to get straight A's. Like, you have a calling. 2 Corinthians 5.21 would say, therefore you are ambassadors for Christ. You're His representative. God making His appeal through you to the ends of the earth, right? To Lynchburg and everywhere that you might go. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's your calling, Christian. You have a calling to obediently follow the King. And He's called every single one of us to make disciples. Not optional, right? Not, well, you can make disciples, okay, as long as you're not too busy this semester. You can make disciples as long as you're not too young or you're not too old. Yeah, then you can make disciples. In other words, if, if you're not right now making disciples, you're sinning. And I could tell you that you're not and make you feel better about yourself. That's why oftentimes people go to church, they want to feel better about themselves. But I have a job to tell you the truth. Right? I've tried, you're not making disciples? Okay, what do I do? I need to repent of that and I need to really pray about this. I need to make sure my life is lining up with the Lord. That's Samson's issue. He doesn't take his calling seriously. It's all one big joke to him. I mean, think about the fact he's having this conversation, right? He should have ran, like, I don't know, a Five chapters ago, he should have just ran, and he doesn't. It's just a joke. This is all a joke to Samson. And I'm thinking of what Jesus says, right, in light of the fact that we know we have a calling. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commands, Jesus says. The implication is don't say that you love him and you just take the Bible and throw it over your shoulder, right? Like, there's enough of, like, those type of Christians in the world. If you love me, you'll obey me. And that can be hard, right? Sometimes we have to really take a good look at our life and be like, you know what? I kind of suck in this area. And God, like, I need to repent of this. Whatever that area might be. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll take your calling seriously. You'll be different than Samson in this regard. This is truly remarkable, this verse. And as I said, perhaps, I don't know, but certainly perhaps, Samson might be the only follower of God that Delilah has ever met. And if that's the case, man, I'm thinking, what's going on in Delilah's mind? She's probably thinking, this guy, Samson, who worships, worships this God, Yahweh, He's no different than anybody else. And you think about just the sheer damage that Samson's causing for the reputation of God by not taking his calling seriously. It makes me think of this time I went on spring break, 2010. I was like a second-year grad student in seminary at the time. Go down to Daytona Beach. Uh, it's hopping, right? You think Daytona Beach, 
um, like on the main strip. It is, however you imagine it, that's probably how it is. I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. People ask me, were you there on a missions trip or, or was it just for fun? Which I, I know oftentimes like people don't mean anything with their heart when they ask me that. Like, oh, missions trip or just for fun? It's always interesting to me because it's like, oh, mission trip? Oh, so you're going to talk to people about Jesus. Oh, not mission trip, just for fun? Okay, so you're not going to talk to people about Jesus? It's, but that's how we, right? That's what usually happens. I, oftentimes I know, like, all right, mission trip, you're going to go with some type of organized group, whatever. But we oftentimes divide our Christian lives like that. We do, right? I'm going to go to church today. No, you're not. The only people that go to church on Sundays are non Christians. As Christians, we gather as the people of God. And we gather on Sundays, and we gather maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We gather together. But we break, I don't know if this is just an American thing or what, but we have a tendency like, all right, well, I went to church, right? I did that, or I'm going to go on a missions trip, and I'm going to give God that week of my life, and then the rest of the week or the rest of the year, that's just my time. It's not your time. You're kidding yourself if you're thinking it's your time. It's all God's time. And what I want in saying all this is I want us to get in the mindset of, whether I eat or whether I drink, as the Apostle Paul would say, I do everything the glory of God, right? So I like playing hockey. People say, how do you glorify God playing hockey? It's pretty hard because that is a pagan sport. Out of all the sports, it is by far the most pagan. I don't, like you're like, oh yeah, the football teams, they've got their chaplain. The baseball team's got their chaplain. The, foot, or the, the golf team has their chaplain. The hockey team, yeah, I don't know what they have. Um, but my point is, is practically, I, I go there. I always pray, Lord, give me opportunity to have intentional conversations with the guys around me in the locker room when I'm, when I'm lacing up my skates, afterwards when I'm unlacing my skates while I'm on the bench. Help me to have intentional conversations. And it starts off sometimes by me just saying, hey, my name is Joe. How are you guys doing? Starts off just introducing yourself. Some of you are like, maybe I should read a book on discipleship. You could certainly do that. But also, practically speaking, you could just start off and say, Hi, my name is Joe. My name is whatever. How are you doing today? And I usually work in the conversation. Do you go to church anywhere around here? Pretty casual, non-threatening conversation. And then I, then I oftentimes swing the conversation to God. But that's how I want us to think, right? That's how I want us to think. When we think about our calling, the calling Samson has, the calling to every single one of us who is, who is a Christian that we have, that's how I want us thinking. I don't want us thinking, oh, yeah, it's spring break. Mission trip? Yes, awesome. Non-mission trip? So my point of it in telling this story is, no, it wasn't a mission trip, but man, me and the guys going down, we were praying, Lord, we pray that we have fun, that you keep us safe, but God, that you give us gospel-centered conversations to have. And I'm, I'm there, Daytona Beach, Daytona Beach, 2010, and I'm having uh, to fill out this online assignment that I have. I don't think there was Wi-Fi hotspots in 2010, from what I remember, but I have to go down to the lobby. That's what's next in the story. I go to the lobby, they have free Wi-Fi, and I'm on my computer, I'm turning in this assignment, and this guy who... I don't know. We'll call him Josh because that happens to be his name. He comes. <laughs> Josh comes, sits down next to me, and uh, he opens up his laptop. We're using the free Wi-Fi. Cool. And we start talking. And uh, Josh is being really chatty. And he's like, yeah, I got to get on Facebook. I met this girl at the club last night. And I'm just oh, hoping she accepted my request because I totally want to get with this girl and hook up with her. And I'm thinking, thank you, God, for bringing this non-saved pagan into my life. <laughs> this is what I prayed for, Lord. 
And I'm sitting there and so I'm thinking, all right, God, help me to, like the whole time, I'm just praying, like, help me to swing the conversation, Lord, to things of eternal significance. And uh, he's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, well, I'm in seminary. At which point he says, what? He's like, my dad's a pastor. I'm a Christian too. (laughs) That was my reaction. I I, I was hoping to have like a little bit of a poker face in that moment, but it was like, okay. Something. All right, Lord. <laughs> Lord, where do I go with this, right? And so um, I found a point in the conversation to try to naturally segue it, and I, I just said, Josh, I'm just curious. How do you think God feels about the intentions of your heart and what you just shared with me? That's what he did. You would have thought I just punched him in the gut. It's really good when you can learn to ask the right questions. And he just stared off for, it seemed like, thousand-yard stare. And he said, I don't think he's very happy. I said, Josh, I, uh, had I not been a Christian, Josh, and had you told me and shared with me, the things you've shared, I would have thought you were a joke. I I would have thought you were just like anybody else. See, we have a calling. Think about how Samson just doesn't even care about his calling, and you think about, like, how the reputation of God was just put, like, through the the blender. What is Delilah supposed to think? For all we know, this is the only maybe real interaction she's had with someone who claims to be like a follower of God. And what is she supposed to think? Like God's like reputation has just been utterly stomped on. Utterly stomped on. And I see this happen like so often. Like a guy gets into a a romantic relationship with this girl and I tell him, Does she, is she a Christian? Well, no, she has a Catholic background, but no, she's not. And I'm like, you have no business dating her. You have no business pursuing a romantic relationship with this girl. This is folly. And of course, he doesn't listen. And then three months later, he comes to me, and he's devastated because he's like, we crossed that line, okay? Doing stuff we shouldn't have been doing. And uh, I said, you know, as disappointed as I am that you, you, you sinned against God that way, I'm, I'm, I'm probably more disappointed because here this whole time you've been saying, like, yeah, you've been trying to explain to her the gospel. This whole time you've been trying to, like, like share Jesus with her, trying to tell her, like, why, like, you um, as a Christian, like, it's different, and you totally undercut that and hurt the reputation of God. That's what Samson does here. He damages it. And when Delilah saw, verse 18, that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. 
She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Once again, the answer to the riddle, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion, finds its ultimate fulfillment here. The man who can defeat a lion is putty in the hands of this woman. She truly is sweeter than honey. She truly will become stronger than a lion. And it says, that when, she, when he had told her all his heart, when he had told her all his heart, he bears his entire soul to this pagan woman. And so many people do this so carelessly in similar fashion, only to be absolutely heartbroken afterwards. I remember one time I'd gone on a date with a girl before I was married. And uh, I'd asked her, I, I think I met her salsa dancing or something, and I asked her to hang out the next day. And uh, so it's really only the second time we've ever hung out. And I remember we're hanging out in a group, which I always advocate. And she, uh, she proceeds to tell me these deep, heavy things like about her life. I've known the girl like a hot 30 hours, that's it. And she's telling me like how her dad had killed himself, like shot himself in the head, and how her like, brother walked in, and just all the trauma for that. And I'm like thinking, oh my goodness. And it wasn't until later on, like after grad school, I think when I was, I don't know, I'd been pastoring for a couple of years, and I had a, there was a female friend that came to me, and she, she got asked to go on a date with a guy. And really handsome guy. I remember that. Really good looking guy. And I'm thinking, this guy seems like the guy that has no problem finding dates. Like, and that's, you know, not just making a judgment because he was handsome. If you're a handsome person, and you, that's all right. But um, <laughs> goes on a date, and my friend comes back, and I said, how did it go? And he said, she said, well, it, it went really well, but he was telling me all these really deep, heavy things. Like, she, he was just really bearing his whole soul and heart to me. I'm thinking the parallel between Samson and what he's doing with Delilah, right? And I'm thinking, there's one of two reasons that he did that. Oftentimes we focus on, all right, like physical boundaries, like don't cross X, Y, or Z, whatever it might be if, if you're not married. Okay, but what I find is that oftentimes people will cross emotional barriers well before those physical ones ever come into play. And so I told my friend, possibility number one, he has no sense of boundaries whatsoever. He has no sense of propriety. So he is just like dumping like everything on you and treating you really as his counselor, his personal counselor. And that's a problem because you're not his counselor. Okay. You're right now, a, like a, you're a potential girlfriend. You're a PGF. I think that's what we say, right? That's, that's what you are, but you're not his counselor, not your job to fix him. I said, that's possibility one. She's like, what's possibility two? I said, possibility two, this guy, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he is dumping all these heavy, deep, personal things on you so that it'll create this false sense of intimacy so that you'll be much more likely to proceed physically with him. Okay? So if you're like, man, we went on a couple dates and I feel like I've known him for a year. Nope, you've only known him for a week. That's all. You haven't known him for a year. Oh, but I feel like I just know him so well. No, like he's oversharing way too much information with you. You should stop him. Okay? 
Or you're doing it. You're sharing all this deep stuff, right? And so it creates this artificial sense, right, of just closeness. You're not really close to him, but he's done this, right? He's probably had success doing this. So now he can cross the next barrier, the physical barrier. Like, there's a reason, right, that the scriptures tell us to, like, protect and guard our hearts. Like, I tell some guys, well, what do I do if I'm on a date with a girl? And it could be flip this girl you're on a date with a guy and they start sharing these deep heavy things i'm like i would just politely say hey um i really i gotta stop you i really want to hear what you have to say but i also i want to make sure i hear it like in the proper time and and i just respect you too much and i want to protect your heart i want to protect mine and so maybe if we could just talk about that topic a little bit later people say what's the timeline on these things i always tell people just just keep it nice and chill for the first 30 days like, then what? What about day 31? Right? They're texting me. All right, it's day 31. Now can I, like, talk to them about this serious conversation? And not that you can't have serious conversations, okay? That's not what I'm saying. When you start to divulge that personal deep stuff about you, okay, and things don't work out, you're left feeling heartbroken. You're left feeling used. Okay? I'm sharing this because this guy knows what that feels like. And you're left, like, just feeling like you're just bleeding all over the place. You say, so I always tell people, don't even have the, don't divulge, not that you can't have serious conversations, don't divulge that personal, deep, heavy stuff about yourself any time in the first month. You don't need to. There's no point to do that. Okay? There's no point at all. And I think this is why it's so important to be a part of a local church to have people besides your 21-year-old RA to guide you through, okay, this type of thing, right? To guide you through the things that life throw at you. It's really helpful when you have people like, oh, you're married? You've done this before? Okay, give me some advice right now, right? So I tell you guys, come to small group. Like, get plugged into the church so you can have, like, real conversations with people. And they can help you. And you can learn and you can grow. Samson bears his soul to this pagan woman. And he is going to be left devastated and just Heartbroken. What is, I think, strange at the very least is how does Delilah get him? How does Delilah get him to sleep on her lap, call in the barber, cut off his hair without waking him up? It's remarkable. It's not new, but it is remarkable. And I say the reason it's, it's new, but it's not remarkable is the fact that this already happened back in the first three verses of chapter 16, almost as a foreshadowing. But here in this part of the story, the tables are now turned. Instead of making the Philistines the enemies of Samson, instead of making them oblivious to what's going on around them, like how I said, the only way Samson escapes in Gaza in chapter 16, 1 to 3, is if God's in it. How does Samson not wake up? How does she get the barbaric? I think the, the most plausible explanation is his God. He puts his own agent to sleep here. Well... Notice what he says. Verse 20. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. 
she makes the announcement, I'll just shake this free. That's been his life story, right? Samson's life story has been the sort of story where he just comes and he goes as he pleases. No one tells him what he can and can't do. It is until now. And perhaps the most tragic part of this story is he did not know that God had left him. Samson's game is over. He's been playing this game with God. He's been taking advantage of God. He's been taking advantage of the patience of God. He's been taking advantage of the mercy of God. He's been taking advantage of the grace of God. He's been playing this game like so many Christians do. And now it's over. He thinks, oh, well, God will be there for me when I need him, right? No. Not this time. That is the, the real tragedy in this story. He thinks God's just going to be right there for him, just as it's always been. And the fact is that that's not happening this time. And Samson's experiences here is really a picture of what's been happening to Israel throughout the story of the judges. Foreign nation comes and oppress them. God, help us, help us, help us. Oh, now you need God, right? There has been a, some type of break in time between verses 21 and 22. His hair begins to grow back. Verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. He doesn't take his calling seriously. And he's so foolish, he bears his heart to this woman he has no business bearing his heart to, and he's left devastated. He's left empty, holding the bag. And you think about, like, he knows. He's not, he's not an idiot. He knows from the very beginning. When Delilah asks him the question, I, 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 he, gotta, he has to know this. And yet, from the very beginning, it's just a big game to him. It's just a game. It's a joke. And so he stupidly plays with temptation. He should have ran. He doesn't. Right? And I see so many Christians just stupidly play with temptation instead of running. It's like um, you go over to your girlfriend's off-campus apartment at 11 o'clock on a Friday night when her roommates are gone to start watching a movie at 11 o'clock as if that ever ends in some deep discussion regarding cinematography? No. No. Right? What do you do? Run! Right? Get out of there! 
And he doesn't. He doesn't at all. He's so foolish. And these people say, oh, Joe, you don't understand, man. She is just so hot. Like, you know, so I, I, you know, I can be strong. I, I can be strong. Listen, she may be hot, but so is hell. And he's so foolish, so arrogant, doesn't take his calling seriously whatsoever. Well, we come to verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. When most people read this, they welcome the fact that Samson finally acknowledges the role of God in his life. Finally, right? At last, he cries to God for help. When all is lost... Remember, Samson's life, I think, is very much picturesque of Israel. When all is lost, Samson knows to whom he must turn. And yet, I've always heard a very different version of this story. I was actually talking to my friend Andrew on the phone. Andrew, if you're listening, shout out to you right now. He'll appreciate that. We were talking two weeks ago. I think he heard part one of the Samson story. Remember, this is part four. And so he said, well, you know, at least, at least at the end of Samson's life, right, he straightens things out, right? That's what I've always taught, right? At the end of Samson's life, he gets everything straightened out. And then I read my Bible, and I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for him to get everything straightened out. Okay, where, where is this? Not seeing this. Look what he prays. Just look at it. O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. In his plea to God to remember him, he seems totally oblivious to a whole lot of other things. He seems so short-sighted, even by the fact that he says, just this once, God, so short-sighted in this. Like he has no thought for God's long-range plan for himself or his people. He's never thought about his people ever once in this story. And yet we know back in chapter 13, what was God's plan? That Samson began to deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines. And even his prayer right here, it offers no hint, no concern to any type of spiritual sensitivity. He has a lack of concern for God's plan. He has a lack of concern for the fate of his own people. What does he say? This is all about personal vengeance. They took my eyes, God. He doesn't seem to care about God's reputation, how he has marred the reputation of the living God. No, not at all. <laughs> not one bit. Even his prayer here is selfish. He's so short-sighted. And, and probably like some of you, you've heard this story growing up, and it was that. Kind of misunderstood, made some foolish choices, but in the end, man, he, he got everything back on track. And I just don't see it. I'm preparing for this sermon all week, and I'm like, okay, maybe I missed something. I'll go to the commentaries. Nope, nope, not at all. All right, let me read this again. Nope. See, that's why I love going verse by verse expository. You get the unedited version of the story, which I don't know why it wasn't told to me growing up in the church. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars, verse 29, on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Here's a guy with a really, really high calling. A guy with a really high calling with just extraordinary divine gifts who quite frankly waste the better part of his life. A guy who is constantly getting sidetracked by his own little personal adventures. I mean, this is a guy whose birth really promised so much, but in the end, like, it's just such a disappointment. Like, he's the guy, like, he's supposed to be the next MJ, the next LeBron, the next Kobe, the next Ovechkin, the next Crosby, the next Gresky, the next whatever, right? He's the first round, first overall pick, and he is a total bust. He wastes the vast majority of his life. He's just sidetracked all over the place. And he doesn't take his calling seriously. I can't think of anything that's more sad than that. To live 50, 60, 70, 80 years, right? And then you look back at your life and you say, I wasted it. I wasted it. He got one life. And he wastes so much of his life. Just sidetracked all along by these little personal escapades, never thinking about his own people, not once. And this is why I often tell people, which they never heard this John Piper quote before, it catches some people off guard, but I always tell people, the devil is mainly about good things. Because you can see the bad things. That's why, right? It's like, oh, that's a hurricane heading for Florida. That's bad, right? No, Piper says the devil's mainly about good things to keep you from the best thing, right? And if the devil can get you sidetracked off your calling by giving you good things, he'll do that. He'll give you that relationship. He'll give you that job. He'll give you that career advancement. He'll give you anything and everything, right, to keep you from the best thing. And then you come to the end of your life and you say, what have I even done with it? I wasted so much of it. I know a lot of you guys are students in here. And uh, obviously I, I want you guys to do well at school, but... Even that can become idolatrous. And I'm going to be careful here, so if your parents are listening online, I don't get emails or calls. It's happened before. Um, People say, well, my number one priority is school. No, it's not. Okay, it's not. And and, and hear my heart, because if you're in school right now, I want you to do as good as you possibly can, right? I I want you better work your tail off at school. A lot of money, someone's paying for that. You better but that's not your calling. That's not your number one priority. Like your number one priority is to faithfully serve and walk with the king of the universe. That's it. 
That's it. That's your calling, Christians. And if you're not doing that, you are sinning. You are. And more than just that, you are being sidetracked down a path that is way too familiar based on the story we've just looked at in which we come to the end of this man's life and we say, he wasted so much of his life. So much of it. You think about what he could have done. And yet, while he may have wasted his life or the vast majority of it, in the end, he does indeed begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A man who somehow, somehow makes it into Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, by the sheer grace of God. I'll read Hebrews 11 for you. Maybe it should have a section called honorable mentions, because I don't, I don't know how he fits in here. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. How does a guy like that make it into this list? He doesn't, apart from the grace of God. That's the true hero at the end of the story, right? It's not Samson. He's like the worst. The true hero is, how does that guy make it into that list? God. He is so gracious to us. He is so patient with us, including people who very much like Samson. You're just really, you are not taking your calling as a Christian very seriously. You've been just playing this game for like ever, it seems. And he's so good and he's so patient and he's so gracious to you. But make no mistake, at some point, that ends. At some point, he'll call you to account. And my hope and my prayer for everyone here, those listening online, is that we are living our lives in such a way that we are not taking advantage of God's grace. That we are living our lives in such a way that we make our lives count. You only have one that we make it count for things of eternal significance. We are sent here on a special mission as ambassadors to the king of the universe to go and make disciples amongst the lost and the dying in this world. And they need the hope that can only be found in Christ and what he did for us when he hung there on that cross. And if you're not doing that, I'd call you to repent. Okay? I'd call you to repent and get back on the track. So as the worship team comes, I want to pray for us today. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray you forgive my I pray that you would forgive me, and I pray that you would forgive us collectively, Lord, for not taking our calling seriously. Lord, I don't want to be a joke. I don't want to play a game. 
I don't want that for anyone else listening. Lord, I pray that we would learn from Samson's story. Lord, I pray that we would not waste our lives, but that we would feel the urgency of that calling on our lives for a lost and dying world. Lord, forgive us and help us, Lord. Help us to walk faithfully and obediently, Lord, to you. Help us to answer the calling that we have. We need your help, Jesus. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience, especially when we get sidetracked. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.